Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. Sasha Takshablu Point is a Coast Salish writer and musician whose 2022 memoir recently won the Washington State Book Award. The memoir is called Red Paint, the ancestral autobiography of a Coast Salish punk. It travels across generations to tell a story of healing. Sasha spoke with KEXP's Isabel Khalili about her musical influences, her search for a sense of home, and creating her own rituals through punk music. When Sasha Takshablu Lapointe does vocals for her bands Medusa Stare or Fleur de Louvre, it's more than a performance. It's an act of healing. And she wears red paint. I come from a lineage of strength. Our ancestors wore red paint in our longhouse ceremonies. Red paint was, you know, the sign of the healer. Sasha and I recorded our interview at Daybreak Star Indian Cultural Center, which is nestled within Seattle's Discovery Park. It's a location Sasha chose for its personal significance. I've been coming here since I was a little kid for different language events, and my parents were married here. I've been coming to the powwow, the summer powwow here, and I just have really great memories of running around here as a kid, like running around the trails and going down to the beach and stuff. So it's really nostalgic for me. We made our way to a downstairs corner of the building, a giant cedar carving of a smokehouse ceremony so, hung on the wall. Like you can see carved into the wood, you have like the large pillars of the, the, the smokehouse and the dancers. The carving was made by one of Sasha's biggest artistic inspirations, her uncle Ron. He was a red paint dancer in in the smokehouse, and so that comes up a lot in his work. You know, that, that meant a lot to him, that connection to his culture, while also kind of balancing his life in the city as a contemporary artist. Like you. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. We sat down for our interview outside, surrounded by forest and with a view of the Salish Sea. Throughout our interview, you may hear the hum of the building's nearby HVAC system, or a train passing, or planes overhead, but you'll also hear bird songs. This is the ancestral land of the Coast Salish people and of Sasha Takshablu Lapointe. So I'd love to start with a short passage from the book, if you don't mind reading it. It's on page 201. I was tired of being brave. I would rather be something else, carefree, an aging millennial, someone who enjoys listening to the Cranberries and Cindy Lauper on road trips down the coast. Call me a writer. Call me a riot girl. Call me Coast Salish or poet. Call me a girl who loves Nick Cave and night swimming and ramen and old Bikini Kill records. I no longer wish to be called resilient. Call me reckless, impatient, and emotional, even indigenous. Call me anything other than survivor. I am so many more things than brave. 
I really love this passage because it insists on a fuller picture of you and your individuality and that's something that often gets erased when people want to tell a simple story of a people especially of indigenous people and I love that you also give your own terms to be defined with can you talk about why that's important for you yeah I think that you know as a Coast Salish woman who wanted to write a story who wanted to tell my story it was important to me to also challenge the narrative of this trauma survivor narrative. I wanted to call to mind if we are capable of inheriting generational trauma, are we not also capable of inheriting strength and and power? And this idea of indigenous identity, like through a skewed lens, through the white lens, like we're often put into a box or frozen in time. But we're so much more than that, you know? Sure, like, there's ceremony and salmon and Coast Salish, you know, medicine in my book, but there's also, like, punk tours and basement shows and mixtapes and all of these other things that make up my identity and the things that I draw strength from. The passage also points to some of your musical influences. Could you um, walk us through some of those? Yeah. um, I think my earliest influences are definitely like rooted in the Seattle scene. I grew up on the Swinomish Reservation, which is about an hour north of the city. And I was just enamored with all things, you know, Seattle. I was really, you know, growing up in the woods on a reservation, it's easy to feel isolated. And when I started finding out about this thriving music scene, just an hour down I-5, I was just wanting to be a part of it so much and found an outlet in it. And I remember making some of my first mixtapes with bands like Bikini Kill and Slater Kenny and that sort of opening up into a world of, you know, of course, like Nirvana then led to the Wipers and just kind of finding all of this really good Seattle, Seattle music. But I'm also like, I have to include my like nerdy goth stuff. Like I'm a goth baby at heart and loved you know Joy Division and The Cure and that opened up to like post-punk bands when I got older like I love The Chameleons and um, Soft Kill you know it's just sort of like all over the place but my earliest influences were definitely in the whole like Olympia Seattle scene. And then so you spoke about Kathleen Hanna and in the book you talk about how she specifically inspired you to sing and to use your voice in a certain way. Can you talk us through that memory of of hearing her and, you know, wanting to channel that through your own voice? Yeah, I can remember, uh, I think the first Bikini Kill song I ever heard was White Boy. And I was a teenager and it blew me away. You know, it's a, a really intense song and a really powerful song. And as a young teenager living on the reservation and having experienced sexual violence to hear a song like that was life-changing and it sort of somehow gave me permission to to be in my anger and to want to like it kind of like ignited this fight in me I felt really seen you know I felt like oh not only are other people sort of experiencing things that I've experienced they're also screaming about them and singing about them and 
Kathleen Hanna specifically like sort of resonated with me in this way that she has like kind of a girly cheerleader sing-song voice at times and then can go from that sort of hyper femininity into just like guttural screaming about these things that I was also angry about and something about the the hyper femininity and the strength and anger behind it just really inspired me and made me go I want to do that. So you talk about the search for a home and for a sense of permanence and how that is not what settlers intended when they created reservations for indigenous peoples. Can you talk about that search for home and how it's evolved throughout your life? I think for me it's really examining what it is to be Coast Salish in a post-settler colonial landscape and how difficult that can be. You know, our ancestors faced erasure. They faced attempted genocide. They survived the smallpox epidemic that was meant to erase them. And so this idea of reservations and these very temporary homes, we weren't in the the settler-like lens intended to last. And so here in our ancestral like homeland and territory, we are still here. We're still thriving. We're still existing. We're making art. We're in bands. We're teaching and writing. You know, we're very much still here in our home, even though there was an attempt to to sort of erase us. So I wanted to talk about sickness and healing, which come up a lot throughout the book and in your music. You talk about the pain and violence inflicted through colonization and how that manifested as sickness in the bodies of your ancestors and was passed down to you. But you also talk about your ancestors and yourself as healers rather than victims. When did you start seeing yourself as a healer? Throughout the process of writing Red Paint, I couldn't have arrived in the the space I needed to be in to write Red Paint had I not failed epically with the first attempted memoir, a book called Little Boats that I talk about in Red Paint. And I went into that story pretty recklessly. At the time, it was important for me to just get my story down. I, I, you know, was very inspired to to share my story as a survivor, as a Coast Salish woman, and going into it, didn't realize all of the things that it would bring up, the sort of the ways that it would make me come undone, the reliving certain memories and trauma. I became really sick. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was having flashbacks and fainting even, and a couple times went to the ER as a result and couldn't understand what was happening until I started reaching out to my my family, my mom specifically, and this idea of, you know, she reminded me of our ancestor, a woman called Kamsha Kohalawish, who at only nine years old survived the smallpox epidemic that wiped out her entire village. And she reminded me that I come from a lineage of strength and that our ancestors wore red paint in our longhouse ceremonies. Red paint was, you know, the sign of the healer. And she reminded me that that I come from that that lineage and that I have the ability to heal. So Kamsha was, after she survived the smallpox epidemic, she later married a Scottish sea captain who was with the Hudson Bay Trading Company. So essentially directly 
related and connected to the forces that brought over smallpox in the first place, right? So she ended up marrying this this Scottish settler, and he married her because he found out that any settler marrying a native person got twice the allotment of land. And so he erected this this grand house that is still in El Waco to this day. It's got like one of those historical site placards on it. And um, at the edge of the property line made a small shack with dirt floors, four walls and one window where he made her live. Even though she was the wife and the mother of his children, she wasn't allowed in the main house. And so her story just pulled me in. Like I went to El Waco several times in the writing of red paint to go sort of stand on that land and, and visit her and honor her. And each time I did, I felt like this sort of connection to strength and resilience. Like she survived all of this. And when I put aside little boats and started revisiting these stories of the women who came before me, that's when I realized that I had a different story to tell. One, not focused on this sort of sad catalog of every sad thing that had happened to to me as a survivor or to my like Coast Salish ancestors, but rather it was a story of strength and healing. Absolutely. It really, I mean, yeah, that completely came through for me in reading it. And, you know, the title of the book, Red Paint, comes from that ritual you're talking about, which is a very specific ritual to you and your ancestors. But you weren't always given permission to participate in that. Um, I think the first time you did was when you were performing with your band, Medusa Stare. Why was it important for you to get that permission in that moment? I knew that I wanted to ask permission um, because it's a really sacred, like our longhouse ceremonies are sacred. And I wanted to honor my ancestors in a respectful way. And years earlier, I remember being at Seattle Pride and my mom and I were marching with the two-spirit flag and some folks were wearing their regalia. And I thought, that's really cool. And I said, well, mom, should I wear red paint? And she said, absolutely not. Red paint is ceremonial. It's not meant to be adornment or celebration. And so I was corrected and was like, oh, okay, I, I understand. And so years later, when I went to her again, for very different reasons, asking about red paint, she surprised me and, you know, got up and went downstairs and came back up with a, a little chunk of, of red clay that is incredibly sacred and important to our tribe and our family. And she said, I've been holding on to this for you for a while and I'm giving you permission to wear it now because the work you're doing is rooted in healing. It's not for me, it was never just performance. When I put on red paint each time I performed with Medusa Stare, it was an act of healing and a way to honor my ancestors and that sort of power that I come from and to remind myself that I have the ability to heal. What was that journey like for feeling like you had permission to not only participate in these rituals, but to create your own, your own rituals? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in, like I felt it physically in the first couple times I got up and tried to, you know, perform with Medusa Stare. My voice was quiet. I was really shaky. You know, as someone with uh, anxiety disorder and, and PTSD, like I would kind of go into fight or flight. And in those first few performances, I was quiet and I was scared even. And as tours went on and shows went on, that 
repetition of speaking those words was so powerful and kind of taught me about like stepping into my power and using my voice, which is what drew me to punk in the first place. And so it was really beautiful to actually feel the physical change in my body and to be like, I'm allowed, I'm allowed to be loud. I'm allowed to be heard. And that was like massive for me. What's the importance of storytelling in terms of preserving and passing on indigenous culture? Storytelling is something that is so near and dear to my heart growing up with my great-grandmother, Vi Taksha Blue Hilbert, who was a celebrated storyteller. And my earliest memories are of sitting around the, the fire with her, um, her telling stories. She'd always say them first in Lashutseed and then recite them in English. And like storytelling to me is super sacred. And I think it's why I write, you know, um, growing up with my great grandmother's like Lashutseed language revitalization work and her storytelling very early on kind of imprinted on me this deep respect for for language and words and and story and I don't know if I would be a writer without her I think of a documentary in which my great-grandmother was speaking and said she has this quote without language there can be no culture and I think that that was a really beautiful sort of observation especially given her work as a language revitalization activist and a storyteller she understood this idea of language disappearing, like if our traditional Coast Salish language disappeared in the face of the colonizer's language, what else would we lose? Like so much, and like to me, it's about the language and also the stories that she told, like our culture as Coast Salish people. And she had a like profound respect for that and passing that down and keeping it from disappearing. And I think that stories have the capacity to, to do that, to save things from disappearing. Mm-hmm. That was Sasha Taksha Blue Lapointe speaking with KEXP's Isabel Khalili about her memoir titled Red Paint, the Ancestral Autobiography of a Coast Salish Punk.
That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.